Amen. Thank you, Jordan. Always encouraging. Uh, the, the thing I get after testimony so often is, uh, thank the Lord I'm not the only one who struggled with, with, with these things. These are great reminders because it's a great lie of the enemy that you're the only one who struggles with anxiety or uncertainty or uh, anger and frustration at uh, how things happen. All right, so transitioning into our sermon right now, the last, um, excuse me, we spent our first few weeks in Proverbs discussing and defining wisdom. And so in chapter one, we defined wisdom as knowledge applied in the fear of the Lord. Knowledge applied in the fear of the Lord. That is our definition of wisdom. We're gonna spend the next few weeks fleshing that out. Um, And so practically, before we get into chapter 10, and uh, before we can begin to imply the individual Proverbs, that's what, I think what most people uh, know the, the book of Proverbs for uh, are the, the individual Proverbs that, are, that take up the, the bulk of the book. So before we can understand those practically, we have to see wisdom established in chapters 8 and 9. So we'll spend the next few weeks in 8 and 9 kind of fleshing out um, what wisdom is. Um, so there's often a question, who is wisdom? Because she's personified as a woman. And I like George's, George Swab's uh, quote here from his commentary on Proverbs. And he says this, who is Lady Wisdom? She is a poetic personification of life and favor from Yahweh. Love her and find divine favor. Hate her and die a fool's death. She invites all humanity into her home where their instruction will begin. So that's a helpful idea of who is this, this lady wisdom in the next two chapters. But let's take it a, a step further. We really need to talk about um, the concept of wisdom in Proverbs in general. So you can use a lot of big words here, but I, I will define them. But the words are necessary. So lady wisdom is a metaphor. She is used metaphorically, essentially a figure of speech. So... Uh, not referring to something directly, but using a figure of speech to paint a picture. I'll get to those in a moment. You can leave it up there. It's fine. Um, She's also symbolic, meaning she stands for something else. She's not the end in and of herself. Um, She's a metaphor for someone else and stands in the place of something else. So there are three sections in chapter 8. This week we're going to be dealing with the first one. So wisdom is seen as an unparalleled principle in verses 4 through 11. So uh, that is wisdom as a concept, wisdom as uh, an overarching principle. Number two, she is a communicable attribute. So if you were in our men's study last month, that big word basically means something that can be shared, that is communicated from one to another. It is an attribute of God that he shares with and uses in his his creation. So uh, wisdom as a concept in 4 through 11, wisdom as an action in 12 through 21, but she's also a, a divine possession. So the last section will look at wisdom as being held by, possessed by, and used by God. Um, and so we'll look at the wisdom of God in particular uh, that is not communicated to his creation in the last few verses. All right. So I do want to talk about this idea of personification, though. So the personification of wisdom as she is important here. We talked about this. Because if this is a book written by father to son, what's going to get the attention of a young man than a young woman? And so he, there's a lot of nodded heads in the first few rows here. Um, 
So there is the, the contrast between the woman from last week, the adulteress, who pulls the young man aside by her temptations, and the woman this week and next few weeks who is, is, is wise. But it's important that this personification of wisdom does not mean that wisdom is a separate person or force. Does not mean that wisdom has some identity on her own apart from the God she represents. This is important. So it is, most, is more precise to think of wisdom as a what than a who. Because this, this question does come up more, or come up often. Think of wisdom as a what rather than a who. Um, this wisdom is to be prized. This personification is to be prized because she points us to Christ. And um, she shapes us in his image. But often, if you've been around the church for a while, if you're familiar with this idea, many people will try to make the argument that wisdom is Jesus in chapter 8. Anyone ever heard this, this argument? Um, if you haven't, you will probably at some point. Now, this is an old debate. It has been around since very early in the church. And um, some of you may, may think, well, why do we care whether it's a who or what? Or why do we care if this, this is Jesus here or not? This is important. Um, because if you say that this is Jesus, every time wisdom is mentioned, everything that is attributed to her is Jesus, some things are going to line up perfectly. Some things are going to become problematic. First and foremost, it's a her. Um, that may make sense in our gender-fluid culture, um, but that's not biblical. Um, the other thing here is this chapter is one of the favorite chapters of the Arians. So the Arians was a very early um, heresy that says that Jesus was a created being. He's the first of the created beings. He's the greatest of the created beings. He's created before all other beings, but he's still a lower G, lesser God. Because of the latter half here, um, speaking of wisdom having a beginning. So if you look at this as a Christological, big word for saying the study of Christ, if you try to say, I'm going to find out everything I need to know about Christ from, from um, Proverbs 8, it creates a lot of problems. And in our culture, modern day Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses, who are Arians, this is one of their, their favorite texts. See, Jesus was create, a created being. So some things are going to point to Christ. Um, some things won't perfectly. Um, so here's how I want you to kind of think about this. All of the qualities of biblical wisdom are found in Christ, but not all of Christ's qualities are found in wisdom. Let me put that more simply. All wisdom is in Christ, but not all Christ is in wisdom. So when you read Proverbs 8, Everything that is good about, about wisdom is in Christ, but he is not limited to what we see in the text. Not all of Christ is in, is in wisdom. Don't try to stuff him in. When we take a text, and yes, we want to see Jesus in all of the scriptures, and all the scriptures do point to him, but when you try to stuff Jesus into uh, texts that are, are, are not meant to, you can kind of create some problems. So um, this is where you take allegory too far. Now we'll speak, so we kind of sp spoke philosophically, theologically, Wisdom is a type. Wisdom is a, a type. It, it points to and foreshadows something greater. Just like Moses points to Jesus as the greatest prophet. Just like David points to Jesus as the greatest king. Just like the sacrificial lamb points to the final sacrifice. These are all types. Jesus is the antitype. Meaning, he is the one that they are all modeled after. Everything points to him. Wisdom's sole purpose is to instruct us in the fear of the Lord, and point us to Christ. Um, 
So I think this is shown really well, and this is kind of be our theme verse for today. This is a long introduction, but I want you to get this before the next few chapters. Colossians 2, 3. This will be our theme verse for today. Speaking of Christ here, Paul says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, all of wisdom is in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So normally when we go through a text, we're going to work through the text and uh, especially in, in, in Proverbs, we'll deal with the uh, cultural situations and, and all that. And then we'll kind of unpack it and then we'll point it to Christ. We're actually going to work in the reverse. I am showing, I am saying that this entire text is pointing us to Christ. And we're going to walk through and see how it, it points us to Christ. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So we're going to walk through our text, but we're going to see how Lady Wisdom is contrasted with the adulterous woman from last week, and we're also going to see how all of this finds its uh, fullness in Christ and actually greater in Christ. So, Proverbs chapter 8, and begin reading in verse 1, and uh, read through verse 11. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gate in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips." All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Your people in this place that we may be wise, not in our own eyes, but in your sight. That we may be disciplined and challenged and instructed and encouraged by the wisdom of your word. I also pray that if there are any here this morning who are trusting in their own wisdom, who are trusting in their own strength, that they may see Jesus Christ. That they, like Jordan, will feel pain and grief over their sin. And turn to him in saving faith. Because as we read the scriptures, as Jesus himself said, they all point to me. Let us see Christ in the scriptures. And may your spirit give us understanding and carry us along uh, as we read and study and apply your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so again, chapter 7. Last week we saw the adulterous woman and it's this... It's this sobering tale that warning you against the path of death. This one is in complete contrast. Chapter 8, wisdom is a benevolent woman who has a loving appeal to follow the paths of life. So if you weren't here last week, um, I'm going to do a lot of comparisons. You can go back and listen to it uh, on, on the website, and I encourage you to do that. So let's begin. Verse 1, does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice? All right, so since chapter 1, wisdom and true understanding are synonymous together, and they're synonymous with the fear of the Lord. This is expected for the people of God. 
You will listen to wisdom. You will listen to understanding. Uh, These two are seen synonymous. Now, I want you to look at this list here. This is describing wisdom and see if there's any similarities to what we saw last week. On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. Do you remember last week? Look at chapter 7, 11, and 12. The adulterous woman is everywhere. She's loud. She is wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner, she lies in wait. This seems like, oh, these details seem very similar, but the wording here is important. Both of these women have public ministries. Both of these women are preaching a gospel. Both of these women are calling young men to them. But where they do it and how they do it could not be more different. Uh, they both minister in the, the public square. Um, and just like that, that woman, wisdom is loud too, but her call is very different. So one of, the, one of the, the things here, just in case for those of you who are kind of, still kind of struggling with, how is this not Jesus? So Isaiah 42, we'll get into that next week, uh, is the, the, the servant of the Lord. And Isaiah 42 specifically says the servant of the Lord will not cry out. He will not raise his voice. So wisdom cries out on, 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 his, on his behalf, um, but this, is not, this does not have to be Jesus to bring glory to him. All right, so I want to kind of lay the, the groundwork of what's going on in these two chapters and kind of give you a picture. There are two conflicting uh, ideas here. This is a, a, a war of, of thoughts, if you will. And this is kind of a poetic view of what spiritual warfare is. You've got the voices from one side and the voices to the other, and, and the call is who you're going to listen to. So I think there's a great picture of this from our history. So if you think our political debates are bad now, has anyone ever studied political debates from early American history? It's fascinating. Because, so some of our, some of our um, terminology comes from them. So there's a term called stumping. And, and so um, basically, because there was no TV, there was no radio, the candidates would, would come in, into town, whether local, state, or, or federal, you know, and the crowds would, would gather. They'd set up one stump on one side of the street and another stump on the other side of the street, and they would hurl insults at each other. So this is not just my, my policy is better than yours, like your mom slept with a dog kind of stuff. This, the, if you read the, the, the transcripts, they are hilarious. And they would get the, the crowd riled up and, and, and try to pull them from one side to the other until there was literal mudslinging. So, so today, when we talk about mudslinging in political campaigns, it came because in these dusty frontier towns, two candidates are, are, are going at each other until people start throwing mud and tomatoes and all those other things. So if you think our political system is, is, is out of control now, it's hard to believe it was a lot worse. Um, that picture kind of gives you this idea of these, these two competing voices, except in our example, only one is playing dirty. Only one is slinging mud, and only one wants those who listen to roll around in the mud with them. And that's what we looked at uh, last week. So I want you to think about this for a moment, that we live with this every day, this, this, this kind of battle of ideas. And so think about the adulterous woman from last week. We have the adulterous woman with a megaphone with high production value, Right? This, this woman wants us to be drawn after our own sins and our own desires. Okay, you're not tracking with me. Think about this. When you turn on the news, what do they want you to do? 
They want you to be angry and they want you to be fearful so that you can keep tuning in so they can keep ratings up. Um, marketing wants you to be materialistic and hedonistic. Buy this and it'll make you more happy. Put this on and you'll be more attractive to the opposite sex. Billions or whatever else is going on in our culture. Um, billions of dollars are spent trying to convince you that if you work out more, you dress a certain way, you put on enough cologne, perfume, parade yourself in a certain way, um, then you can be attractive to who you want to be attracted to and you can feel validated. Because sex sells and it's a big business. And so this adulterous woman, we see it on, on a grand scale. And it is a much louder voice than the voice of, of, of wisdom. I mean, I could keep going on. How about perverse music being blared loudly out of cars and uh, stores and, and we're just being assaulted all the time. But wisdom is not lurking in the shadows as this woman is. So I, I want to kind of break this, this down. Look at the terms in chapter 7. She's loud. She's wayward. Verse 11, her feet do not stay at home. She's in the street. She's in the market at every corner. Look at those terms. Those are not the high, reputable places. Um, those are the, where the, the shadows exist, where, where, where the commoners are. She's on the street. She's in the market where all the business is being done, and she's on the corner. Even today, the corner does not have good connotations. Nothing good happens when you say, yeah, they were standing on the corner for an extended amount of time. This is the same idea that this, this woman um, kind of blends in with the world and she works from the shadows. But look at Lady Wisdom. Look in our text, chapter 8. On the heights beside the way. Um, this is militarily, you, you have the best vantage point from the height. But also, if you're thinking about Jerusalem, this is literally a city on the hill. When you're in the high point of the city, you can see everything. She's doing this in broad daylight, in, in vision of, of um, whoever's in, in front of her. She's not hiding. She's not in the corner. She's not in the, the, the market. She's standing above the commoners. The next one, she's at the crossroads. What are crossroads? Crossroads are a place where you come to where you have to make a decision. You come to a crossroad. Do I go right? Do I go left? Wisdom stands there. Wisdom stands where you make your, your decisions, and she is waiting to give counsel on whether to go the path of righteousness or the path of wickedness. Wisdom is also beside the gates in our text. So we're not familiar with this, but in the ancient Near Eastern cities, and particularly in um, Jewish cities, the gates were where all the, the, the business happens. Um, this is where Boaz makes his deal for Ruth. This is where disputes are, are, are solved. So she's beside the gates. Wherever the, the, the men of the village are making decisions, that's where she is. She's also at the portals. This is the, the, the entrance of the gate. This is where the elders sat. They sat right by the entrance to the city. So wherever the, the decisions are being made, wherever disputes are being solved, that's where she is. Wherever the important things there are, are, are going on. See, see the difference here? This is a, a contrast between the kingdom of God, Christ's kingdom, that is about order and uprightness and um, caring for the town versus the kingdom of the world that is selfish and self-indulgent and lurking in the shadows. So one of the things we're going to see in chapter 8 is it's a long poem that ends with wisdom as the, the transcendent attribute of God. 
She is high above all creation as her God that she represents is. She is in the heavens, but she's also imminent as her God is. She's among the people. She's among the commoner. So in every way, wisdom points us to the Lord, high above all things, but close by. Now let's look at her call and see how it's different from the woman in chapter 7. Verse 4. To you, O men, I call. Again, this is a woman first calling to men. We're we're, we're dealing with um, the attention of the sexes here, but this is a general call. I'm calling to men, but my cry is to the children of man. This is to everyone. This is all of, of mankind. I call to the leaders first, but this is for everyone to listen to. This is what we call in theology a general call. This means that I've got good news. I've got something for you to hear. And everyone can hear this, this message. It's not a secret. It's out in, in public. So um, Jesus gives us an example of this. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22 for me. We're going to look at a couple passages in the Gospels. Jesus gives us a parable of this general call. And he gives it in the picture of a wedding feast. This is Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The imagery is important here. He sent his servant to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Here's this, this general call. He has in mind here Israel. This is the king, God the Father, who's giving a feast for his son, God the Son, and he invites all of the people who should be invited. But they would not come. We know that they, by and large, rejected Christ. And he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Notice what this picture is. The gospel call is that the king has prepared a feast for you. The most wealthy guy where you live, the most powerful and influential wealthy man is offering you a feast, is offering you the biggest party of the year, and you don't want to go. Why do they not want to go? But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his citizens, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Think about this. This is exactly what our culture does. The gospel says, I, the God of heaven and earth, invite you to eat at my table. Be united and celebrate with my son. But the world says, no, I got to go mow the lawn. I got to go to work. I've got other things to do over here. And some say, no, we're going to kill you. They did it to John the Baptist. They did it to Jesus. They did it to, the, to 11 of the disciples or the apostles. They've been doing it to the saints throughout the ages. This sounds crazy, but this is the essence of spiritual warfare. Let's go on. Verse 7. The king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So there is punishment for rejecting the son. Then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready. He prepared a meal. It, it will be enjoyed. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite, the wedding feast, uh, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And so this is the Jews rejecting 
Now the call going outside of Israel. Highways and byways, bring them in. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. That's why we're sitting here today. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out onto the roads and gathered all whom they, whom they found, both bad and good. Some people on the outside looked like they deserved to be there. Some people were, did not look like they deserved to be there, but they all got invited. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But notice what is, here's the distinguishing factor of this wedding. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. So in those days, as, as now, you dress up for weddings. But this was a bigger deal because you had maybe one or two weddings a year, and this is the only time you got to dress up. You had special wedding garments. And if a king was wealthy enough, he would give you garments for the wedding because he wants everyone to be prepared and dressed. These garments are not any, ready, any regular wedding garments. These garments must be spotless. You're standing before the king. You cannot have one speck of dust or dirt or your own sin on them. These wedding garments are what can only be given through Christ. These wedding garments are what the saints wear in Revelation 19. These wedding garments are ones that have been washed clean by the blood of the Son. And that is the only way you can stand in this feast. But there was one man without the wedding garments. And he said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Because the answer when you stand before the king is, how did you get here? The only answer that is satisfactory is, I am wearing the clothes of the son. I have been given a wedding garment by your son. My invitation was by him directly. The man who's standing there in his own strength without wedding garments is speechless. This is what happens when the gospel call goes out and you don't know Christ. You are still standing on your own. Then the king said to the attendants, bind his hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are two eternal trajectories. Wedding feast with the son or eternal damnation apart from him. There are no other options. But here's the, the theological principle that's tied all together. For many are called, here's this general call that wisdom calls out, but few are chosen. They are not chosen based on their own good responses. They are chosen based on the clothes of the sun. They are chosen based on his righteous garments. Many are called. The gospel call goes out to all. That's why we proclaim the gospel. That's why we share. We don't know who will be chosen, who are chosen, but we know if they have the garments of Christ, they will hear and they will respond and they will run to the feast. This is what wisdom is doing. Um, so theology, in theology, we have the general call. Here's the general call that goes out to all. There's also the effectual call. Now let's look at Luke chapter 5. Here's the, here's, here's the difference. The general call goes out to all. The effectual call means when that general call comes out, on some it will take effect and some it doesn't. A great example of this is Levi, the tax collector, Matthew. This is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. This is the effectual call. You hear the words of Jesus and you drop everything. Not, I got to go to work tomorrow. After I get my life straightened up, then I'll, I'll, I'll follow Christ. No, he drops everything. 
And he was so grateful that he was invited to the king's feast, he gave the king his best. He made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. You know what happens when the call becomes effectual? When you hear the words of Christ and you now have life, you want all your friends to know. You invite everyone. You open your, your house, the good and, and bad. But the Jews did not like that. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. What does that mean? It means that his call is not to those who think that they are righteous in their own eyes. His call is not to the ones who show up to the wedding garment in their own clothes. I'm good enough, king, before your sight with what I've got on. He came for the sick. He came for sinners who know they need a savior, who know they need to repent. Amen. This is the difference between the general call and the effectual call. The general call is up to us. The effectual call is up to the Lord. And so this is gospel ministry. And so long explanation for uh, Lady Wisdom here, but I want you to get this idea. When, when she calls out, wisdom cannot save you, but wisdom calls you to the one who can. Wisdom sends the, in, the, the, the invitation, but you must come to know the master of the feast. Um, so verse 5 here. Here, for, uh, excuse me, verse 5. Oh, simple ones learn prudence, and oh, fools learn sense. Um, her call is to learn. That's what the word disciple means. Disciples are learners. Her call is to learn, specifically to learn about Christ. Learn about life, learn about eternal life, learn about salvation, learn prudence. No longer be simple. Remember we talked uh, earlier in Proverbs about the, the, the simple ones being immature. The uh, foolish ones being ones who are not only uh, immature, but maybe a little reckless. But you know what's interesting about the call of wisdom? That wisdom is not directly associated with education. Oftentimes, you can be very smart and very foolish at the same time. Very often, the smartest people are the least wise, especially in our day. But here, even the fools can learn. The immature can learn. The fools can learn. Wisdom's call is to get out of your ignorance, to, to grow, to mature. Unlike the adulterous woman, she preys on immaturity. She wants you to remain ignorant. She wants you to remain simple so she can manipulate you and twist you for her own purposes. Notice, the adulterous woman is selfish. Come in and find all of your pleasures in me. The wise woman is selfless. Come, I want you to be mature. I want you to gain sense and, and uh, prudence. I want you to grow. And so here's what's, what's going on here. Um, and so when we preach the gospel, it is a call to the simple. It is a call to the foolish. I want you to look at Romans chapter 10. Here is a different, um, and so Bible interpreters kind of can get caught up sometimes, or maybe um, uh, novice interpreters. Oh, the word call there means one thing. The word call here means, it means or, or the word call is here, the word call is here. It means exactly the same thing. These are different types of calls. I want you to see how this works out, though. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Um, or where am I beginning? 
Yeah, 11. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who answers the call, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, whether you're invited first or invited last. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on, on him. So you may say, well, is it God who calls or I who call? Well, first it is God who calls. Then when you, when you, when you hear the call and your heart turns, he teaches you how to call to him. And so when you put your trust in him, he will bestow all his riches on you. We'll get to that later in our text. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Does God call or do we call to him? Yes. The order is important, but both are true. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, we are speaking on behalf of Lady Wisdom. We are entering into her call. We are calling the simple to find prudence. We are calling the, the, the foolish to find sense. We are calling them to find Christ. And it is not based on our words and our ability to be persuasive. It is on our ability to point them to Jesus Christ. Just like wisdom, we cannot save, but we can point them to the one who can. And so this, this gospel call is to the simple, to trust in him for the first time. Or maybe for the hundredth time. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you are still simple. We still need that reminder. Prudence, wisdom, discretion, sense. Stop acting foolish. The adulteress preys on the young men. The wise woman instructs them and wants them to grow. But, like I said, this is not just a mere intellectual pursuit. This is not just being smart in terms of, in terms of um, facts and things like that. This is not an intellectual condition. This is a spiritual condition. This growth cannot happen in, in textbooks and dictionaries. You can read the Bible a thousand times and still be foolish. The Pharisees were. This is a spiritual condition. This is a shepherd who calls. This is a shepherd who calls you, and you either hear his voice or you don't. And if you hear his voice, do you listen? Do you come? Do you heed it? And he, this shepherd speaks through many messengers, wisdom kind of personifying this, this gospel message. All right, let's move on. So now we've got uh, three reasons for the young man to listen. Why should you listen to me? One, um, I'm a lot better option than the adulterous woman, but there are three characteristics we're going to work through. Three pairs of verses. All of them are opposite to the adulteress. Number one, um, she speaks truth, verses six and seven. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, and my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Like God himself, she cannot lie. There is no error in her. And she calls you to hear her because she is a representative of the God that she represents. Hear, Shema in the Hebrew. It is not just listening. It is listening and obeying. It is an implied that when you hear this, you are to do what you hear. Listen and obey. Hear, for I will speak noble things. Instead of shallow flattery, lies and manipulation of the previous woman, she speaks what is noble, what is 
upright, what is, what, is, what is true. There is no deceit or wickedness in her. Notice the uh, detail here. For my mouth will utter truth, wickedness is an abomination to my lips. If you've been here for a while, remember in chapter 5, what was going on with the lips of the adulteress? They were dripping with smooth honey. She was appealing to the flesh. What is, what is sweet and what is fleeting? The, the lips of this woman hates the things that God hates. She hates the lying tongue like God does from chapter 6. This is tying together and contrasting the woman and the character of God himself. The call is here, for I will speak noble things. This is for those who have ears to hear. For those who hear the shepherd's voice, there is only one way. There is only one truth and one life. And if you hear the words of wisdom, you respond and know that voice. The other thing I want you to see here is that wisdom, of course, resides in Christ, but not only in Christ. Wisdom is an attribute of the Godhead. Because Jesus says, when I send my spirit, I will send you the spirit of truth. Paul, as we read earlier, sends the spirit of wisdom. Same spirit. This is a communicable attribute of God. The Father is wise. The Son is wise. The Spirit is, is wise. And when there is a call, it comes from the entire Godhead. But this wisdom can only be found at the cross. This wisdom can only be understood in the fear of the Lord. This wisdom is foolishness without Christ. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've gone here many times, and we'll go here many times more uh, in this book. It'll be on the screen if you can't get there quickly. But I want you to see this in context of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the gospel call. The gospel call goes out. And if you hear Jesus Christ, man and God, walked perfectly on this earth, went to, went to the cross to die because you deserve to die, because you are a sinner. And if you trust in him, he stands in your place. This Jesus, fully God, fully man, rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, if you were in him, you rose from your state of being dead to your sins as well. If you hear this, this is either the most amazing news of the power of God or it's just foolish. There's only two responses. This is either crazy talk from a bunch of religious fanatics or the best news you've ever heard. Amen? This is what Paul is saying. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You can be smart, but, Paul, but God will destroy your wisdom. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. You know how awesome God is? I'm going to take what is foolish and basic and what the rest of the world criticizes, and I'm going to glorify myself through it. And everything that the world lifts up and they think they're, they're, they're so smart in and of themselves, I'm going to bring it to nothing. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is the power of God. 
Wisdom has a purpose when you read it on face level. Can you read Proverbs and make better decisions in your life? Absolutely, and you should. But can you understand Lady Wisdom truly without Christ crucified? Absolutely not. But to those who are called, this is the effectual calling, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To us, this is true wisdom, knowing Christ and him crucified. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. Amen. This is the effectual call when ears are opened. When you hear the message of the cross and you say, this God who is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise me too. This God who sent his son for sinners came for me too. I need this God. I need this wisdom. And if you say, no, I've got wisdom on my own. I'm good enough to stand before God. Good luck. You're going to need it. But you'll be like the man in the wedding feast who's, who's cast out in his own garments, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. All right, let's continue. Number two in Proverbs. So, yeah, only on number two. All right. Uh, she speaks truth. She also speaks righteousness. This is more of a uh, moral quality. All the words of my mouth are righteous. Her words are synonymous with righteous. All words, only what is good. There is no evil in her at all. There is nothing twisted or crooked in my words. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. But here's something else I want you to see. There is no righteousness or rightness. There is no moral good without salvation. There is no wisdom without the cross, and there is no goodness without the cross. Let me show you. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. Uh, there are so many places I could have went this week, and it's hard narrowing them down. But I want you to see this. This is the call of God himself. We hear wisdom calling out in a metaphorical sense. This is God calling out directly. There's no beating around the bush here. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved. Hear, O simple ones, how long will you remain simple? All the ends of the earth, it's a general call. For I am God and there is no other. This is truth. By myself I have sworn there is nothing higher than me. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness. Righteousness leads to salvation. There's no understanding righteousness apart from being saved. And that word shall not return, meaning it will accomplish what I said it to do. And to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? Paul attributes that to Christ as it should be. You hear the righteous words of the call. You turn to the Lord in salvation and you bow before him and say, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it says here, every knee will bow and every tongue will will confess. Paul goes on to say that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You will either bow in, in this life and say Jesus Christ is Lord and fall on your face before him and cry out for mercy and find forgiveness. Or you will bow before him on the day of, of judgment where there is no second chances, where it is it is too late. You will, you will see him in glory and say, he is Lord. And he will say, I never knew you. 
because you're not covered in my garments. Wisdom speaks truth and what is morally upright as well. The adulterous woman is persuasive. She sounds really good, but she's as crooked as they come. She's in complete opposition of this message of righteousness and uprightness. So I want us to think about this picture in the latter half of these verses. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. So let's think about crooked versus straight for a moment. This is a basic concept. We all understand this, but I want us to, to, to think about it. It's worth considering. The goal of every builder, every welder, every body shop owner, every accountant, every dentist is to take what is crooked and make it straight. Not just flat and, and, and straight, but what is out of order and put it into order. We live in a disorderly world. Regardless of what evolutionists say, uh, there is nothing that goes from disorder to order. Never happens. We are in a cursed world. From the sky to the dust, everything is affected by sin. And we live in a world of chaos. But when God tells us to take dominion over the world, we are actually filling, fulfilling his cultural mandate by taking what is out of order and putting it into order. By pay, taking what is, what is crooked and making it straight. And so this is the call of wisdom. Everything I do is straight. We can't imagine that. Us OCD people in, in here, we can't imagine a world where nothing's out of order. Because everywhere we go, i got to fix that, that picture and put these pens in line depending on how crazy you are with it. But we can't imagine all things being straight. We have no concept of that. This is the wisdom of God. Nothing crooked. Nothing out of place. Sin makes everything crooked. Sin makes everything twisted and distorted. Remember, we talked about this last week. We will talk about it again and again. The enemy, Satan, his only job, the only thing he can do, he can't create, he can just distort. He takes what God has made beautiful and he twists it. And he uses it for his own purposes. And so do we. This is what sin does. But in our best human effort, we cannot make what is crooked straight. We may do many, of outward, many outwardly good things. All those things are, are true. Builders make what is crooked straight. Dentists make what is crooked straight. Uh, accountants make what is crooked straight. We can do all those, th those things on an earthly level, but we cannot make what is spiritually crooked straight. We cannot make what is, what is, what is dead alive. But to him who understands, to him who hears wisdom's call, notice what is said here. They are all straight to him who understands. This is the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, um, who was the forerunner before Jesus, prepare, for the, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. I want you to look at Luke 3. Notice the language of straight here. Luke 3, 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. There is no crookedness in him. 
Not in his life, not in his ministry, not anything he's ever said or done. It must all be straight for him. Every valley shall be filled, meaning what is, out, what is too low is brought flat. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Nothing will be too high or too low for him. His paths are always straight. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Everything in Christ is always straight, always perfect. And this way, wisdom points to him perfectly. But his promises are also straight too. Because if you are in him, the rough places shall become level. doesn't mean your life's going to be perfect or easy all the time. But it means he will guide your, your steps. The crooked places will be made straight. Your decisions become a lot easier. Because you're looking to please the Lord and not please yourself. And his ministry is so that all flesh will see the salvation of God. Let's, let's put this together with Proverbs. Um, this is probably the verses in Proverbs that everyone knows. What's the most popular verse in all, ver, two verses in all Proverbs? Exactly. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Here's the promise of, of wisdom. Look to the one whose paths are straight. Look to the one there's no crookedness in. Trust in him with all your heart, and he will make your paths straight. All right, lastly, verses 10 and 11. Here's number three. She speaks truth, she speaks righteousness, and she speaks what is valuable. Her speech is a treasure. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you desire cannot compare with her. What is worthwhile is not temporary wealth. Gold is only valuable because we say it is. Dollars only valuable as long as they are valuable and probably not much longer. But what, is, what will not die out, what will not wear out, what will not lose value is what is valuable to God. And let's be honest, this is a constant tug for us. The silver and the gold and the shiny things of this world, man, they got a great pull. But how many of you have gone after that shiny thing and you still loved it as much a week later, a month later, a year later? How long does gold make you feel good? How long is a new watch, a new car, a new TV, any of these, these shiny things? There's nothing bad in and of themselves. But like the adulterous woman last week, the perfume, the Egyptian cotton, it it clouds our, our senses. He gets, he gets bombarded with the shiny things of the world, and he's lost it. Made me think of Pepe Le Pew, who like when the, uh, when the uh, lady skunk starts, starts parading around, he, he smells that he's done. He's just like floating across the screen. And then thinking about it, he's a bit of a creeper. Um, but <laughs> but this, is, this is what sin does to us makes us find our treasure in, in, in what is fleeting, and we lose our minds. I've got all this treasure. What did Jesus teach us about riches? Let's look at Matthew 6, 19 and 20. I've got, I got a few texts here, but I'll move through them kind of quickly. Matthew 6, 19 and 20, you probably knew this, know this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is not just an external condition. What you put your value in is a reflection of the state of your heart. We make decisions inside out. What our heart treasures, our actions will, will, will treasure. Also, look at Matthew 13, 44, where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that, that field. That is the kingdom of God. That is what wisdom promises. That is the feast of the king. I will sell all that I have to get it. Take the shirt off my back. Take everything. Because what's in that field, the kingdom of God, to be in communion with my king, to be covered in, in the garments of his son forever, it is worth everything. I will give it all up for that. Jesus told us that Solomon was array, arrayed in great splendor, but Solomon would trade all of his riches. Look what he says. For the wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you desire cannot compare with her. Solomon, the richest, wisest man who ever lived. I'd give it all up for more wisdom. I'd give it all up for the things of God. Moses, another great example. Hebrews 11. Moses, another man who knew riches. Uh, you have never seen as much riches as Moses did. Moses was number two in the kingdom of Egypt, the most rich and powerful nation in the world at that time. He was number two. He could have anything he wanted. Up to half the kingdom was offered to him. All the gold in the, the, the known world, they were exceedingly wealthy. But look at Moses' mindset. This is Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt, for he, for he was looking forward to the reward. Think about that. He would rather suffer with Christ than have all the gold of Egypt. Can you say that? It is better to die a martyr's death, penniless, but be in the kingdom of heaven, than have all the riches of the world and die in your sin. Why? I want to go back where we started, Colossians 2, 3. Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's not only the wisdom, but he's the treasure as well. He is that treasure in the field that you sell everything and go get. He is the one that you will sell yourself into um, poverty and slavery for, like, like, like Moses did, to share in his suffering so you could share in his glory. He is the treasure. All of wisdom is in Christ. He is all wisdom, but he is so much more. He is so much greater. Here's where I want to end. Everything, in conclusion, everything wisdom does, everything wisdom is, and all her promises are found in Christ. There's no need to look to anything newer, anything higher. He is the fulfillment of all things in Scripture. But it is too simplistic and confusing to say wisdom in uh, Proverbs 8 is Christ. The reality is so much greater. Remember, 
as a type, wisdom is similar to Christ. But as the anti-type, he is far superior because she points to him. So I want to close with this um, summary of wisdom in the Bible. So wisdom gives us the picture of all the scriptures. Wisdom in creation is God walking with man. All things are straight. Wisdom in its fullness is Christ walking on earth. What is straight walking among what is crooked. Wisdom in its, in its completion, in its consummation, is God walking with man again in new heavens, new earth, new creation. All things are straight again. Where does the book of Proverbs fit in? The book of Proverbs is man walking with his God between creation and new creation. Straight among the crooked, as Christ did. That is the book of Proverbs. I want to pray for us in our opening text. We're in Ephesians 1. Uh, I cannot pray something better than what Paul already did. So I hope you take this text to heart. I hope you find encouragement in this if you are in Christ. But if you find that you are the emperor with, with no clothes and you don't belong in the wedding feast, cry out to him. Call on him and you will be saved. But church, I am so proud and encouraged to be a part of this church. And so I echo the words of Paul here in Ephesians 1. This will be our closing prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen.